Amen. Well, again, uh, welcome to The Grove uh, this evening. My name is Caleb, uh, if you weren't here at the beginning, one of the pastors here at The Grove. We are continuing our study tonight through the book of Philippians. So if you've been with us, we've been uh, 18 weeks in the book of Philippians, and we're nearing the end. So next week is the final part in Philippians. We'll be in chapter 4 this evening, verses 14 through 20. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the larger numbers, and the verse numbers are the smaller numbers. We'll be in chapter 4, uh, verses 14 through 20. So Paul is writing this book. It was originally a letter that Paul wrote. Uh, Paul was in a prison in Rome and received a gift from the church of Philippi through this guy named Epaphroditus. Um, If any of you uh, have a boy on the way looking for names, may I suggest Epaphroditus. It rolls right off the tongue. Um, And he received this support, this financial support, this gift from the church. And so Paul is now writing back to them to thank them for that gift. And also to give them some instruction. There were a handful of things that popped up within the church. And also just to encourage them. This is Paul's most encouraging letter that he wrote. And so we've been walking through it. We've seen uh, kind of the heights of Paul's encouragement and so much uh, teaching and theology and doctrine for who God is. But now we get to the very end of the letter. These are kind of Paul's final remarks. So he's finished his kind of formal teaching in verse 9. And here in verses 10 through 20 is really just a long thank you from Paul for their financial gift to him as a missionary, as they've supported him. This church that he had helped plant 10 years previously, Paul is now thanking them for that support. And so we saw last week in those four verses, Paul gets to that incredible verse in 13, one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we saw that that verse isn't about scoring a touchdown, but that's about walking through every situation in life with contentment. Be able to be in whatever situation God might throw our way, whatever we might walk through, that we can find the secret of being content, and that is being united and finding our satisfaction and contentment in Christ and in Christ alone. And he then strengthens us. But what Paul was saying there is he was telling that church, hey, we just want you to know, I didn't need that support, quote unquote. I wasn't coming going, I don't know what I'm going to do. I I need you to be able to come and partner with me. Paul was saying, I was actually content. And so you may go, Paul, that's kind of a rude thing to say. If someone supported you, you just say thank you, man. Like like Paul, in in Philippians 2, you, you summarize the complexity of the doctrine that says that uh, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and yet God is the one who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, Paul, you have this incredible doctrine of sanctification where we are the ones working, but actually God is the one working in us. And you summarize that in one sentence, two verses, and it takes you ten verses to say thank you? Paul, what's wrong with you, man? Just say thanks and end the letter. But Paul wants to be careful. Paul wants to make sure because money is something that can so easily be thought wrongly of. And there's so much danger in the love of money. Not in money. Money itself isn't evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. It's not money that's the root of all evil. And Paul's wanting to make sure that he gives a proper thanks to the church for their gift for him. So he began with their thanks, as we saw last week, with saying, I actually wasn't in need. I had found the secret of being content. I was, I was there with Christ who gives me strength in any situation. Paul now pivots to thank them and give them kind of some categories to think through 
giving, and in particular, giving towards missions. So this isn't exhaustive. Paul's not going to give kind of a full theology for generosity and giving. He does that in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. They're kind of the best chapters on that. But Paul does give us a handful of principles that are helpful here for us to think about. How are we supposed to think about giving as Christians? In particular, how are we supposed to think about giving towards missions? Because Paul is a missionary that's supported by this church. How are we supposed to think about that? Are we supposed to go, oh, these poor missionaries wouldn't have a chance if it wasn't for us as we come to be able to support them and fund them? Or even towards the church, do we go, oh, this church wouldn't be able to run without us. They, they need us. Well, Paul has shown in the last few verses that he doesn't need anything, but he has found contentment in Christ. So how then are we to think about this? Why should we give? And that's the question I want us to look at this evening and find four principles that Paul lays out and how we are to think about giving, in particular, giving towards missions. So if you're a note taker, we've got four points this evening. First, um, we should give because it exemplifies your partnership. It exemplifies your partnership. Second, it expresses your concern. It expresses your concern. Third, because it expands your profit. And fourth, because it exposes your heart. Four principles Paul gives here in these six verses on why we should give. It exemplifies your partnership. It expresses your concern. It expands your profit. And it exposes your heart. So first... Uh, let's read verses 14 through 20, and then we will dive in. So Paul picks up uh, here in verse 14. He says, Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. Not that I seek a gift... But I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So first, Paul says, why should you give? He said, because it exemplifies your partnership. Do you see in verse 14 the language that Paul uses in his relationship with the church in Philippi? Look at verse 14. He says, still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. You did well by partnering with me. That word that Paul uses for partner, he's used it a couple times in Philippians already. In chapter 1, he used it in verse 5 when he talked about your partnership in the gospel with me. Again, in verse 7 of chapter 1, he says, you are all partners with me in grace. That word partnership or partner is the same word that is often translated fellowship or community. It's that Greek word koinonia. And Paul is saying the relationship that we have, Paul the missionary who helped start this church, so the relationship that we have with one another, I am not just a supported missionary of you. We are partners in the gospel. We have this partnership. And he's saying, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And Paul's saying, that's the relationship that I have with you. I'm not somebody to just write a check to and forget about and maybe every now and then hear from. Paul is saying, we are partners together in this. 
Right? Again, it's often translated as the word fellowship. So I don't know if we have any Lord of the Rings fans here. If not, we have, I know we have at least one because I am here. And there is, in the very first book, which is also the first movie of this uh, trilogy that came out of the Lord of the Rings, is the fellowship of the ring. Now, what made that fellowship a fellowship? Well, it wasn't because they liked each other. I don't know if you've seen the movie or read the books, but it was comprised of wizards and elves and dwarves and hobbits with their huge hairy feet, and uh, men as well that were easily corrupted. There was this group of nine, the fellowship. Well, if they weren't friends, then what made them a fellowship? What made them that kind of community? Right, that word community is often thrown around in churches a lot today. It's that we want to have community. But what exactly does Christian community mean? Does it mean we're just friends? I mean we just share common interests? We just sit around and watch the extended version of Lord of the Rings all day long? Or does Christian community mean something else, that koinonia, that fellowship? Well, I put forward that J.R.R. Tolkien understood what makes a fellowship a fellowship. It wasn't their common interest. Elves and dwarves hated each other. What made it a fellowship wasn't their shared interest, but their shared goal. It wasn't their common interest, but a common goal. Those nine came together and said, we have one mission, to destroy this ring. Therefore, we are the fellowship of the ring. That's what makes a fellowship, a shared communal experience that is working forward to the same goal. And friends, Paul understands that as he writes about partnership, fellowship, and community. It's not just, hey, as a church, we're to get together and just all like each other, and that's community. It's that we come together with a shared goal. Not our common interest, but a common goal, what God has called us to, to enter into that mission, not to destroy a ring in, um, in Kazadum, but to come together, as Matthew 28 says, and to make disciples of all nations. That's the mission that God's called us to. And we then follow him in that mission that he will carry out, friends. He will build his church, and his gospel will go to the ends of the earth. And we get to be a part of that. And then, as a local church, what that means is we then become partners in grace. We become partners in the gospel together for that end. As we come together and say, that's our mission. That's what brings us together. Not what movies we like, not what color our skin is, not what foods we enjoy eating, but the Savior that has died for us and the mission that he's called us to. That's what creates this fellowship. That's what creates this partnership. And then to go even a step beyond that then, as Paul shows, that his relationship to the people outside the church that the church supports, like Eric down in Miami, Antonio in Italy, Gary here in Claremont, who's about to move up to Knoxville, Rich and Trish and Sonia, our gospel partners that we have locked arms with as they are in Africa and in Knoxville and in Italy and in Miami. They are not just people we write checks to, but as Paul says, we are partnering with. I love the story of William Carey, one of the great, really the father of modern day missions is what he's often known as. He went to India in the late 1700s. But before he went, he was there with some of his close friends who were pastors. One of them in particular was a guy named Andrew Fuller. They started the Baptist Missions Organization, the Baptist Mission Society. And Andrew Fuller, as they stood in a room with Andrew, William Carey, and a few of their other friends, William was getting ready to go to India, and he would go there for over 40 years and give his life 
to taking the gospel to a place of people that haven't heard it yet. And as they were in that room and William was getting ready to go, he looked at Andrew, his friend, in the eyes, and he said, Well, I will go down if you hold the rope. Andrew didn't go with William Carey to, to India. Andrew stayed as the president of that society. He would go around the United Kingdom preaching missions-related sermons, raising support to be able to continue to help partner with William Carey so that he could go and take this gospel over there. Andrew said, I am here, and I am holding the rope, and you're going down. And there was that kind of a partnership that was there. And friends, my hope is that we as a church could have that kind of view towards missions and seeing God has called us into the mission. We are all missionaries taking this gospel to the ends of the earth. Some of us will go down and others of us will hold the rope, but we're all partners together with the gospel and grace. May we have that kind of a perspective and that as we give, we are giving because it exemplifies that partnership. It shows as an example of that relationship saying we are giving not just to individuals. We aren't giving because there is need and they wouldn't know what to do without us. There is contentment that can be found in Christ. But as we give, we would do well as partnering together in hardship. So that's the first reason why it is we should give. Because our giving exemplifies the partnership that we have to see God's mission fulfilled here on earth. Through the local church. The decisions that we make with our budget filter through that lens. Is it accomplishing our, accomplishing our mission to make disciples who know, treasure, and obey Christ? And as we partner with missionaries around the world with the same mindset, we should give because it exemplifies your partnership. But second, not just that, but also because it expresses your concern. Did you catch that? We, we didn't read it. I want to go back and read it. It was the very beginning in verse 10. This is what Paul, as he begins his long and kind of rambling thank you to the church in Philippi, he writes this. He said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. Notice Paul doesn't say you set it up on auto draft to send the money to me. Paul says it through your gift you renewed your care. I could feel the relationship that we have. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. Paul was saying, your gift, as you have partnered with me, actually showed concern and care for me. And as we give, it expresses our concern as well for the people that we partner with. And so I love that Paul here is saying, there is again a, a ramped up relationship that churches have with one another and with those that we partner with. It's one of care and one of concern. As we financially support missions around the world, also seeing that it's driven not just to write a check, but asking, how are you guys doing? How can we be praying for you? Goodness, even short-term missions, sometimes just going over to see how they're doing. I love in Acts, one time Paul gets Barnabas up close to him. He says, hey, Barnabas, let's go back to the churches that we planted and see how the brothers are doing. That was the purpose of their short-term mission trip, to go and see how they were doing. To be able to care and show concern for those that they were with. And so for us as a church to be able to see our partners, not just as that, as partners in the gospel, but also beginning as a church to show care and concern for them. Certainly through giving, but also through other ways. What are ways that we can show care and concern for the people that we partner with? For those in, again, Miami, Knoxville, Italy, or in Africa. 
One in particular I want to highlight. We've just prayed for Sonia, uh, who left last week to go back to Africa. But her brother, Rich, and uh, his wife, uh, Tricia, are here for kind of the, the next month or so, maybe a bit longer than that, kind of depending on travel plans. So Rich and Tricia are back on home assignment right now before they go back to Africa um, here in just a little while. And so one thing I would say is that while they're here, take time and have them over, them and their family over for dinner. If their schedules allow it, uh, go and find them and just ask them to be able to go to dinner. Take them out to lunch. Talk to them before or after a service. Join a small group because they're going to be going around to meet all of the small groups this fall while they're here as well. To be able to just get to know them. Because whenever our partners are more than just a name on a, on a piece of paper, but we see the people that they are. We hear the stories that they have. We hear their for, heart for the places where God has called them to. It changes our relationship and our concern with them. So get to know them. Pray for one of our gospel partners. Any of them. They're, they're, if you want their email address, you can grab it at the connect table. Pray for them and then email them and tell them that you prayed for them. Let them know that they're not alone. Let them know that there's someone who's holding the rope. Sign up to receive their newsletter if they have a newsletter. So you can continue to get news and information about what's going on in specific ways to be able to pray. And then respond to that newsletter. Let them know that you have read it, that you care, that you are praying. Text them, download WhatsApp, and um, WhatsApp them, I guess, if you would. Email them, and just get a connection with them to let them know what is going on. Or if God blesses you financially, just send one of them money. And just say, hey, praying for you, I hope this helps you. I hope this shows the concern and love that we have for you. Go and enjoy a night together with your family. And express and show your concern and your care for them. May we be a church marked not just by supporting missionaries, but caring for missionaries. In the way that Paul and the church in Philippi did as well. So why do we give? Because, because it exemplifies our partnership and because it expresses our concern. But third... We give because it expands your profit. Interesting phrase. What does that mean? Well, Paul, as he was writing in verse 15, he said, You Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, I left Macedonia. No church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. And so Paul is saying, you guys have partnered with me for a long time. Even when no one else did, you guys were there with me. But then he says this in 17, which is so interesting. He says, not that I seek the gift, not that I seek that gift of support from you, but in fact, I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? What is Paul talking about? Paul's saying, you have supported me. You have given towards the mission that God has called me to, but I don't seek that gift. Paul is actually motivated by the gift that they're going to receive, and that is uh, an increasing profit to their account. As their profit expands, well, what is Paul talking about? Is Paul a prosperity gospel preacher saying that as you sow into my account, God will sow tenfold, a hundredfold back into yours? No, that is not at all what Paul is saying. Nowhere in the Bible will you find teaching like that. In fact, there is difficulty that is expected for every disciple, not health, wealth, and prosperity. That will eventually come, but that's only when Jesus returns. So Paul isn't talking about that. So what is Paul talking about? 
Well, I think Paul is referencing the treasure and the profit that will come to our accounts one day when we get to eternity. What do I mean? Well, I'll quote Jesus here. Jesus is a good person to quote, and here's what he said along these lines. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 20. He said, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. He said, Don't don't store up for yourself treasures here, stuff and money, because it will not only not satisfy, but it won't last forever. John Piper, a a pastor, theologian, um, once said that you've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul on the back of it. We can't take it with us. And Jesus is saying, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Life is fleeting. We don't control it. But Jesus says this, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. Well, how are we supposed to store up treasures in heaven, Jesus? What does that mean? Do I, do I get money and throw it up really high and hope it stays up there and is being stored up in the clouds? How am I supposed to store up treasures in heaven? Well, he tells us in that same chapter in Matthew 6, verses 2 and 4. He says, so whenever, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. He put it this way. Whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be applauded by the people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you may give in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus is saying that, Our life of faithfulness, here in particular with giving, and Paul elsewhere in Corinthians talks about as we live, there are rewards that we store up for ourselves in heaven through living faithful lives here on earth. And so we can't go down that rabbit trail because that's not what the sermon is about. If you have questions about what that means, we can email me or we can talk about it afterwards. You can email me, gwood at lifeofthegrove.com, and I'll answer all of your questions. So we can't go down, but what we see in the Bible is there are rewards in heaven for faithfulness here on earth. And actually, that should partly motivate our desire and drive for holiness. Paul is here linking, saying that there should be a desire in your generosity here on earth and open-handedness in giving here on earth. Part of that is driven by seeing that there are rewards that are to come. As we say, we do not live for this world. We are pilgrims here on this earth. We're not home. We're traveling home. And so we will live like strangers here. We will live like we are on vacation here. We are not going to set down roots because this is not our home. We are heading home. And so while we are here, we are pilgrims and we are stewards of what God has given us. And so we can give because we are freely giving because of what God has done for us and the hope that we have in heaven to see that God says, listen, give it all away if you want to because this isn't what it is all about. It can't make you happy and come together to be able to give because there is profit and treasure that is coming in eternity. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Give in secret so that your Father who is in heaven sees in secret and will reward you. So Paul is saying, I don't seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. 
Paul is saying, that's what I want to see. I want to see you guys as a church in Philippi living faithfully, living generously, living open-handed, giving to those in need around you and supporting the mission of God around the world. Because I know that when you do that, then your account will be increasing. And that profit, that fruit will be increasing. And Paul is saying that should be part of the reason that motivates us to give. And so we give because it exemplifies your, relation, your partnership. It expresses your concern. It expands your profit. But third, Paul shows us that it exposes our hearts. As we give, it exposes our hearts, what is truly there, both for good or for bad. Again, to quote Jesus in that same sermon in Matthew 6, verse 21, Jesus concludes that teaching and says this, Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, you want to know what's in your heart? We can't see it. Even if we get a microscope and we cut our chest cavities open and we look at our hearts, we won't be able to see what is in our hearts. How can we know what is in our hearts? Jesus says, if you want to know what's in your heart, look at where your treasure is. Look at the thing that you're longing for to bring you satisfaction to, to uh, bring you contentment, to bring you hope, to bring you peace, to bring you joy. Because whatever that is functionally is your treasure and is an idol that we place above God. And Jesus is saying, you want to know where your heart is? Well, just look at what you treasure. Now listen, that can be a whole myriad of things, not just money. And the dangerous thing is often good things that we may treasure. Whether it be family our jobs, success, where we live, or more specifically, how much is in our bank account, what our retirement looks like. Are those things bad? Of course not. But are we looking to them to bring us peace? Are we looking to them to fulfill the longings of our heart? Are we looking to them to bring security? Because if so, friends, and they are acting as our treasure, and that is where our heart is. But Paul says that as you give, it helps expose and lead your heart to someplace else. That as you give, it's not just done as a random Christian obligation. Paul isn't saying, hey, you should just give to be able to check it off of your Christian duty list. You've done it. Great job. On to the next thing that you need to do. When Paul says what that giving is, look at verse 18 at how he describes it. He says, but I've received everything in full and I have in abundance. I'm fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided. And look at how he describes it. A fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. You see those words that Paul's talking about financial support here. Paul says, your support as you gave to me was a fragrant offering. It was an acceptable sacrifice. It was pleasing to God. It was an act of worship. Paul's saying, I didn't need it. I found contentment in Christ and in Christ alone. But as you gave, you were then coming along in this act of worship, responding. God's generosity to you led to your generosity to others. And that is an acceptable and pleasing sacrifice to God and an act of worship. We see that language throughout the Bible. It was first seen with Noah after the flood as he walked out and offered a fragrant offering 
an acceptable sacrifice that pleased the Lord, that pleased God. And Paul is bringing back that kind of language, saying that when you give, in particular partnering with people to see God's mission extend to the ends of the earth, that is now for us a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice that is pleasing to God. It is an act of worship that shows and exposes where our heart lies. It says, God, we care more about your mission than we care about my comfort. God, we care more about your mission than we care about uh, my security, my, uh, my plans. God, you are what is first. Is it wrong to have retirement? Of course not. We see that in the Proverbs, that an ant stores up for the winter. So whenever hard times come, you're ready for it. That's wise to do that. But again, the question isn't what we do, it's how much do we love it? How much do we treasure it? And when we give, it helps take our fingers off the stuff of this world and vocally and literally say, no, God, I am following you. I am worshiping you. May this show that my treasure, my heart is in you and in you alone. May it expose and maybe even lead our hearts to that. And so as we look in the Bible at examples of this, people who give, often the examples of people that are used in giving, they weren't people who had a lot of money and gave a large amount. They were people who didn't have much, but they gave all that they had. You think of the widow who gave a widow's mite. As all these other people were coming and dropping in money, Luke 21, Jesus says he looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Don't you love God's economy? It's so different than ours. God says, that's the one that I need. That's the one that I'm after. She has given more than everyone else. And I'm sure the accountant in the group was going, oh, no, 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 Jesus. She put in two tiny coins. I, don't, I know that you're the son of God, but let me give you a math lesson real quick. That is not more than that. Jesus says, no, you don't understand. I am the creator and sustainer of the universe. I don't need money. But he wants people's hearts. And this was the lesson that Jesus was trying to teach them. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she gave out of her poverty and has put in all that she had to live on. Jesus was showing that God views things much differently than we do. That as we give, we give as an act of worship. That's why in our services we give at the end of the service in response to what God has done for us. Our gifts for him in response to his gift to us. This is the way in which we live. Not as just an obligation, something we mark off of a checklist, but as an active and an involved act of worship saying, God, this is an offering that's far too small, but I give it to you. It was yours to begin with, but I give it to you. I love Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, put it this way. He said, were the whole realm of nature mine. He's saying, if everything in the world was mine, that would be an offering far too small. That love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Friends, that's how we think about giving and generosity. 
not just an amount and percentage of our income, but as giving to God generously, sacrificially, and joyfully as a part of his mission and as an act of our worship. God doesn't need our money. I love Psalm 50, put it this way, in verses 8 through 14. God says, I do not rebuke you, and he's talking to Israel, I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or for your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. So God is saying, you're always bringing these fragrant offerings before me. That's not why I rebuke you. He says, I will not take a bull from your household or male goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. God is saying, I don't need bulls from you. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I'm the creator of the universe. I don't need animals. That's not the point of this. He says, I know every bird of the mountains and the creatures, the field, they're mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and everything in it is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? God is saying, I don't need those things. A.W. Tozer put it this way, that need is a creature word. God doesn't need anything. He's the creator. He's saying, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? He says, but offer a thanksgiving sacrifice to God and pay your vows to the Most High. A thanksgiving sacrifice. What does that mean? Well, the very next psalm explains it. Psalm 51. David puts it this way. He says, you do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. No, the sacrifice that's pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, O God. This isn't a New Testament idea. This is a Bible idea. It was never just about bringing something and checking an action off a list. God was saying, I don't need the bulls and the goats. I want your heart, a broken and a humbled heart that's an expression for your sacrifice to be an expression of worship. And it's the same for us. We can fall into the danger of just going through the rituals and through the motions. And God is saying, I don't need your money. I own all the bank accounts on a thousand corporations. I want your heart. That's what God is after. And may we come and our giving be then an expression as it exposes our heart as an act of worship. And so that is why we should give, particularly as we give towards missions. Why do we do that? Because we are partners in the gospel. We're generous Christians helping needy Christians while standing side by side for the sake of the gospel. Seeing that true community doesn't rest in sharing common interests, but in sharing a common goal. And we share this goal, to see Jesus proclaimed and the gospel advanced. Through the making of disciples of all nations for the glory of God. And so we give to partner together and also to care and concern for one another knowing that as we live generously here, we are laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven, that our stuff is not ours. We are just simply stewards of it. It's all God's to begin with. We aren't possessors of our stuff. God owns it, and he's called us to steward it. Right, whenever in 2015 uh, I was able to go do an internship at Washington, D.C., Uh, at a church there on Capitol Hill, about six blocks from the Capitol building. And as Leah and I were going up there, we also had a a little four-pound dog, uh, Yorkshire Terrier Poodle Mix, ferociously known as a Yorkie Poo. 
And his name's Ralphie, and we couldn't bring him up there with us. So what were we going to do? Well, we had to leave him here with friends as we went up there. And as they watched him for those five and a half months, I hope never in their mind that they go, oh, this is our dog. We're going to do with it what we want. What was their perspective with the cute and adorable Ralphie? What did they do? They said, this is our friend's dog. We want to make sure we care for it so that when they come back, we give it back to them. We aren't the owner of this dog. We're just watching him. We're stewards of him, managing him until the owner returns, and then we'll give it back to him. Friends, that's every single thing in our lives. We are not the owners of it. God owns it all, and he has called us to be stewards and managers and to be good stewards and good managers of it. As we give back to him what is already his, we are not the possessors of it. It isn't because God needs our money, but because he wants our hearts. And so we give generously for the sake of the gospel. And we give not in order to check off some religious obligation, but as an act of worship, an acceptable sacrifice of thanksgiving in response to what God has given us, the greatest gift that this world has ever seen, his son.